I'm reading in Matthew 4, 20, 12 to 23. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtalia, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, Lord of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, I'm sorry, and the way of the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness, have seen a great light. And on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew, and they were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nests and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father. Zebedee preparing their nests, Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And Jesus went throughout Galilee, preaching, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Thank you, Francis. Well, if you have your Bible and, and want to turn to Matthew chapter 4, that is where we'll be. Since Matthew makes a reference to Isaiah 9, we'll, we'll kind of tip our hat also in that, in that direction. Uh, my, I have some minister friends, some young fellows. I mean, friends and young is a good thing when you're old, right? And uh, they have a, a little <clears throat> podcast. Their little group is called Crackers and Grape Juice. It's a, it's a tipping of the hat to communion, to the Lord's Supper. And uh, they have a tagline. Their tagline is, we want to talk about faith without using stained glass language. And for many... For many today, since we don't use the word a great deal, repentance can come to us as one of those stained glass language words. And if you grew up like me, repentance, we kind of caught from those who taught us about it, meant that we were often groveling in remorse. That you really knew if someone was repentant, if they could show it to you uh, visually by their expressions uh, and tears. If there were no tears, we learned there was no true repentance. I have to tell you that the true added to repentance is an adjective that meant someone had already decided how much you could communicate that you're repenting. In other words, it's an odd way for someone to decide if you're spiritual enough. It just makes a mess of the whole thing of repentance anyway. I mean, there is no recording in Matthew chapter 4 that the disciples were brought to tears when Jesus called them to repent and follow him. But nonetheless, we've got to find our human ways, right? When we want to understand how to receive the word repentance that is not a stained glass language word, that it's not even a dirty word, 
we look for illustrations like the one in this passage and find that repentance stirs the heart and results in a different decision. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we live in houses where our very voices may command a light to come on. I mean, the reality is that various connections give us the perception that we control the light. I mean, just this week, Lord, you probably know about the fact that a transmission line brought darkness to several towns, including some of our own residents. None of those homeowners could restore their own power. And when we read Isaiah, we learn that Israel could not turn on her own lights either. Yet, Lord God, you promised that those living in darkness would see a great light. And Matthew makes the connection for us that Jesus is the great light. When the fishermen heard the call they followed, remind us that repentance is not a stained glass word, not even a dirty word, and that we too, upon receiving the great light, may give in sight to see that Jesus is the way. So may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our great light, and all God's people say. Last Sunday, last Sunday after church, I was standing over here by the sound booth, and and Tom and Glenn were standing there, and we were commiserating a little bit, and Tom said, and Glenn said, we've got to get you to Eufaula. Could have been at the funeral Monday even that we were talking about that. You've got to come, you've got to come experience the fishing. You've got to see our skills. I want you to see just what sort of, what sort of fishing phenomenon we are. Obviously, I'm embellishing a little bit, but you've heard Glenn talk about his own fishing. So it's not much of a stretch. I was thinking back on that reading about these fishermen in Matthew, and I got to thinking about some fishing legends. Any of you, any of you remember Don Wallace Peterson? I mean, the Kansas boy came to Oklahoma landing his first radio job in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. In 1955, he moved to a station in Tulsa and was the very first disc jockey to play rock and roll music. He dropped his last name and became known as Don Wallace. He took a job at WKY Radio in Oklahoma City. And all the while he loved spinning discs, he also had a great love for the outdoors. So he went to the leadership at WKY TV and he persuaded them to give him a spot hosting an outdoor show. It took four years. And when he finally got his chance, he was given five minutes and paid $5 and no expenses for his show. By 1965, he was given a 15-minute spot to fill dead air time in WKY-TV's programming. And by 1971, you got it, the Wallace Wildlife Show became a 30-minute staple in prime time. Wallace changed direction. He repented of spinning discs and instead opted for hunting and fishing show. Well, if you don't remember Don Wallace, maybe you know of Bill Dance. 
Bill Dance was on his way to pursuing a career to be a doctor. When driving along, he happened upon a grisly motorcycle accident, the wiki tells us. After seeing that, he decided medicine wasn't for him. Instead of becoming a doctor, he began competing in bass tournaments. And again, according to the wiki, Dance followed the advice of a lure manufacturer and started a television show. Over time, he teamed up and joined forces with the likes of Roland Martin and Jimmy Houston. Dance changed his mind after seeing that accident. He repented and changed the direction of his life. Peter and Andrew and James and John did not host an outdoor program on the Galilean network. I mean, none of them parlayed their fishing skills into a financial success story. In fact, in fact, in their day, fishermen would have never convinced a television station for just five minutes in first century Galilee, even if they offered to do it for free. They wouldn't have been allowed in the studio. If we were ranking professions in their day, they would be among the bottom dwellers. Parents would tell their children, please don't become a professional fisherman. Find something else to do. And not only that, but rather looking for a market for their skill set, the four fishermen and their peers worked waters that Rome determined were theirs. In fact, there are ancient writings where those who are writing about that time frame describe that wherever Rome ruled all that that was contained within the whoops contained in the realm of their rule was theirs, which meant everything in the water was Rome's. So when they went fishing, they were fishing Rome's waters. Not the Sea of Galilee in terms of what they understood from their past and their history, but they were fishing in Rome's waters, which meant when they took fish from Rome's waters, they were taxed on because they took fish from Rome, and generally what they had to pay in taxes was a portion of their catch. Day after day, day after day, occupied by an imperial force, some outsiders, some oppressors, doing the thing that they learned to do that no one wanted them around to do. I don't know if it was the smell. I'm not sure what it was. They just weren't deemed worthy. They were fishing waters, and every day they went, they were reminded that Rome was in charge. Every day they cast their nets in hope of, hopes of a large catch. They knew they were fishing in Rome's waters, not their waters. And if they needed a reminder, when they exited the Sea of Galilee, there was a tax station right there they had to pay their fishing tax to. Everywhere they turned, they were reminded that they were under Roman rule. And that's just the way imperial, the imperial world worked. So while Wallace and Dance enjoyed the light cast by fame, Peter, Andrew, James, and John lived in the darkness of Rome's imperial power. 
So no amount of fishing success was going to lift them from the bottom of a social culture that viewed fishermen as gross. Matthew Matthew makes, makes an important point here in, in tying the experience of these fishermen with Israel's past. He quotes Isaiah 9. He quotes Isaiah 9 so that those who might hear and try to make the connection that indeed God has given us a great light. He points back to a day where Israel understood what it was like to be under a different imperial power. So in about the 8th century... In the 8th century, the Assyrian Empire had made their way from the north down into the... And boy, Francis, you did a great job. I don't know how you pronounce those. In fact, the matter is, that, that callback, by the time they were in Peter, James, and John's day, they did not refer to that region as Naphtali or Naphtali or Zebulun. They didn't. But for some reason, when Matthew wants to remind his audience the connection being made, he refers to the area known as the Decapolis around the Sea of Galilee. He defaults to the description found in Isaiah. You'd have to go all the way back to Genesis to find out who Zebulun and Naphtali are. One, a son, both of them actually sons of uh, Jacob, who became Israel, one the son of well, Leah and the other of Bilhah, Leah's servant or one of the concubines. But, but remember, here it is that the gospel of the kingdom preached by John the baptizer and Jesus can be traced all the way back to the hope that was promised in Isaiah 9. And here's what we read. Here's what, again, Francis read. A land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. When Isaiah gave the word of the Lord to Israel, he recognized that Israel had fallen into darkness. Rather, rather than be ruled by God's good shepherd, Israel preferred to follow the patterns that they had seen borne out in the experience of the Assyrians. Their hope and their goal was that they could make some alliances with Assyria, maintain control over their land. The problem? The problem, imperial powers exact too much. They want more than we really want to give. And so we give up and we give up until finally, till ultimately, what happens? Well, Assyria took over. Israel was a, just a small nation. They were a virtual nobody on the landscape of imperial powers. So their inability to satisfy the world's power's demands left them subject and those were the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali. And so for Matthew, he's saying, hey, it's happened again. If this happened in Assyria, it's happened again. It's happening right now. Am I on TV? Ah, just checking. That'll all be taken care of. It happens again, right? I mean, from time to time, 
electronics do their thing. But here Israel had to learn again that this thing is happening again. It happened in Isaiah's day, and it's happening in Jesus' day. And imperial power has deemed that everything under its control is theirs. And what the people needed, what the people longed to hear, was that someday, one day, it will be different. It will be better. Listen, if you're following along the near year-long invasion of Ukraine by Russia, then you know that the invader from the north has done all it can to cast Ukraine's major cities in darkness. How have they done it? Well, they've assaulted their utility centers, their electric power plants. They've tried to take their nuclear energy capabilities away that supply lights. You and I, we can go into our home and say, Alexa, turn on the living room light. Ukrainians can't even flip the switch. Now listen, this isn't an attempt to draw modern day parallels with current geopolitics, but we need to feel the weight of what's going on in Israel. If they were in darkness in the 8th century before Jesus, they're still in darkness under the thumb of Rome. I mean, consider how we talk about things When we use metaphors to talk about how things are going and we look at our history, we talk about those were dark days. Dark days. We could reel off a number of moments in our own country's history where we would say those are dark days. And we hear people tell us that in the future dark days are coming again. Some people say we're in them right now. We still have light, however. Do you see how metaphors work? They work to point out what's going on that's different. And darkness in the hands or the voice of the prophet, the repeated in the preacher, the baptizer, we understand that darkness is a condition brought on not just by our decisions, but the overall sense that someone else thinks they're in charge. And what did Isaiah do? Isaiah said, listen, it's dark right now. Assyria may be in charge, but guess what? Another day's coming. The people who were walking in darkness have seen a great light. He's forecasting. He's telling, listen, light is coming. And so even though there was darkness, the prophet was saying, have hope. There is a different day coming. There's a new day coming. And that's how the metaphors worked. Though they were subject to their own sin, that though they were captive to the power of sin under the imperial thumb, they had heard the promise given through the prophet, things are going to change. Things are going to change. And if we were to look back historically, we would find that there were moments, glimpses, where things were changing. Things were changing changing but they didn't finally change they changed partially for a bit but what Matthew's trying to do is tell us by borrowing from Israel's past to say today's the day today is the day the light that has been promised has come and it came to a few fishermen on the sea of Galilee On the shoreline, people who would have been considered the last to see the light, the last in whom we could point to and say, look, they discovered the hope God has given. 
And when Isaiah references the Galilee of the Gentiles, he's doing something we need to pay attention to. He's talking about a light that will come, a hope that's available that's not just for Israel, but for the Gentiles. Get this, that hope is even for the oppressors. Now, if that isn't startling, if that isn't startling, I'm not sure I can startle you. Because you and I, we want the hope for us. We sure don't want hope for the ones who hold us down. But the prophet was saying, the oppressors are held down too, and the good news is for them also. The Galilee of the Gentiles was to make the good news that Isaiah talked about inclusive of all people. God's light was not just for one group. It also included those foreign invaders. They too needed to see the light of the good news of God. See, we are in the season after Epiphany. It's a season after the birth of Jesus to reveal to us what does that mean that God gave himself to us in Jesus. Our theme has been Jesus is God's I love you. It is the season of revealing. And what Matthew is doing is revealing that the promise Isaiah had made that God was going to send a great light, that great light is Jesus. And so there may have been periods where it seemed like that hope was being fulfilled intermittently, occasionally. We can now use our own adjective and say God is perfectly fulfilling his promise And if we use the word perfect, we are trying to capture the tense of the Greek verb in its perfect tense, which simply means this, that there is an action that takes place that has ongoing results. I try to find ways where you and I can kind of maybe make some connection or speculation because we just don't have a perfect tense in English. We can talk about the future, but the way tenses work in Greek, you have a past, a present, and a future, and you've got imperfect tenses along the way that, depending on how the sentence is structured, what exactly they mean in terms of time. But what's happening here is is an event has taken place. It's the fulfillment of God's promise, and it has ongoing consequences in future presence. Not presence as in Christmas presence, but in Next week will be a different future present than today was a week ago. That is to say that at every point in time, God brings the future into the present. And that is the kingdom is being fulfilled in every moment and will finally be fulfilled what the scripture tells us in the second advent. We refer to it as the second coming Jesus' preaching was the kingdom of God has come near. That doesn't mean like it just kind of brushed by. It's, the, it's, a, it's the, in a language that it says it's, it's here and it's yet to come. It's what New Testament scholars call the already and the not yet. God has made a promise. We are already experiencing it and we will experience it afresh again tomorrow. And next month, and next year, and in five years, and in ten years, until the full kingdom is fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. What the four fishermen heard, what the four fishermen heard in the call of Jesus that day was a call to a different kingdom. Rather than 
serve their best adaptations of life under Romans rule, Rome's rule, they heard the call to trust Jesus, to follow Him. He revealed the love that is God to them, and He would illustrate that the power of the love that is God is different from the power of Rome. Jesus wasn't asking them to exchange just who was at the top of the order of power. Jesus was calling them to see power entirely different. What they had learned, what they had learned was that before leaving their nets, that the way power works in the world is coercive. It's maintained by military strength and it's codified in economic conditions. Power is solidified at the top. There is no serving anyone but Rome. When they heard uh, Jesus call to trust and to follow him, they left their nets. And so to follow Jesus for them was an act of repentance. The fishermen repented. They changed their mind. Let me say it again. They could have continued to be fishermen, adapting their view of the world to the reality that Rome would always be in charge. And Jesus came along and said, God's kingdom is different, and I'm asking you to trust that I'm going to show it to you and give it to you. And they had a choice to make. When Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven at hand, it was, listen, I'm going to startle you out of just glibly going along with the way things are, giving yourself to the powers as they be, and I want you to give yourself to the power of love. And they repented. They repented of adapting to the way power worked, and they gave themselves to something entirely different, a something different they did not yet know everything about. So if you think that someone has to know everything and understand everything before they can come to Jesus, we're making a terrible mistake. You didn't have to pass a test. Well, I didn't anyway. Gosh, at nine years old, I'd have failed it. If I'm comparing what I know today as an almost 60-year-old to what I knew as an almost 10-year-old, whew, don't you hope I know a little bit more? Right? You can't make that. And so if we're demanding that everyone know everything possible before they can consent, what they need to know is that there is a force that is work against them that solidifies itself in ways and in, in in avenues entirely different from the kingdom of Jesus. And rather than a love for power, Jesus' kingdom is an illustration of the power of love of a different kind. Jesus called the disciples and us into a different way of life. What they heard Jesus preaching, repent for the kingdom of God has come near, meant that the emotional weight of living in the darkness of their own pursuits of power within the limits of Rome and under the weight of Rome's power would be replaced by the reality that God had given them the light of his love revealed in Jesus. Their emotions were stirred to think that there could be a different way and they began thinking differently. Their minds grasped that the world as it is will become the world as God intended. Jesus would reveal the love of God the God who was determined to be God not without them, even without fishermen. I make that point that it is emotional and intellectual because the word repent has it as its root, the word mind. The way of their 
handling the experiences of life and understanding them is a transformation, a metanoia. Repentance addressed their emotional insecurity produced by a lack of hope and their intellectual framework that power is always, always coercive by force and, and hardened and entrenched. In other words, their repentance at the call of Jesus was opened even to fishermen. Even fishermen. And it was characterized by love that shows up for those the world has determined are worthless. That's good news. That God's love showed up for a group of people who the world had determined worthless. Where the light has shone in the darkness, a darkness that takes in even those deemed powerful, a hope dawns that included even their adversaries. They hear the calling and Jesus' preaching of a world made new, and they change direction. They repent. Listen, if you follow the Gospels and you follow the disciples in them and you read the Acts of the Apostles, you learn this. Repentance is an everyday habit. It's not a once-for-all experience. Repentance is not for the settled. If you have settled, you've probably lapsed back into old ways and patterns of thinking. Repentance is the ongoing alteration of how we understand the world and God's work in it as we describe the kingdom of God. The disciples are often found repenting of ideas about who should be included in the kingdom of God. They are often repenting for their particular habits, the ways they behave, the ways they respond, how sometimes they run ahead of Jesus or are too far behind Jesus. Repentance is a, a way of living in the kingdom. You and I are always learning what it means to follow Jesus. If you stopped learning somewhere after your uh, confession of faith, then it's time to repent again and tomorrow and the next day, embracing what it means to be the one who's been loved by God. It changes everything, our role we play with others. It's not a once-for-all experience for those who follow Jesus. It's an everyday reality that the love that is God calls us to put our ongoing trust in Jesus. It doesn't mean that somehow you're out of fellowship, you're, you're far from God. It means that you're continuing to be brought into a greater awareness of God's love for you and for others. And repentance is that act. It includes the recognition that God is changing our way of thinking every single day conforming us to the image of his son, renewing our minds where our minds are willing to go to places we thought not possible in what we could do in expressing God's love and care. That's the kingdom come near. And it's, and it's an indication of the kingdom that will finally be here. The love that is God is revealed in the actions, our actions, for the benefit of the world still stumbling in the dark where light shines from those who have seen the great light of Jesus. So we say again, 
with the great preacher Jesus. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near.